Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the Witches of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. We're delighted to tell you that this week's episode is in fact our 30th episode, which is very exciting and strange because I think when Claire and I first started, we thought there'd maybe be six this is 30 of six we should just start marking them you know this is 30 of six this is 31 of six. <laughs> oh, wow so i mean there's obviously enough material and this week is is definitely a fantastic one we've got a really interesting independent scholar that's going to be talking to us but more of that later i think first of all claire we're going to do a roundup of this week's news sure <laughs> that makes us sound much more newsy than we are listeners contact us all the time sending us stuff and we're absolutely delighted we do try and keep a, a list and a wee note of who's contacted us for what reason and through the various podcasts we will hopefully give people mentions and discuss what they're contacting with us last week as you'll remember we spoke for a bit about women in public particularly women politicians being called witches and witch analogies being used about them and I think we touched upon that um, last week and we were contacted by one of our listeners from Australia, Tegan, who says that she has been really enjoying the podcast and she wants to, to flag up an example of the former Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard, and wanted to add her to the list of the people who had suffered from misogynistic hate, in particular the issue of witchcraft or, or using terminology of being a witch. And Tegan tells us that in 2011, when Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister, the leader of the opposition, Tony Abbott, attended a protest against her and addressed the crowd by standing in front of signs, which included Ditch the Witch. And she's actually, Tegan's actually sent us a picture of this. And it's him standing there and there are these signs in the background of the idea of a woman on a broomstick with Ditch the Witch. And it's also got Jule, instead of Julia, Juliar, and underneath it, it's got the word bitch, but there are flames coming up from underneath it. It looks like to do with burning, basically. And Tegan says that there was you know, an outcry about this at the time from various people. And there was a speech given by Julia Gillard on misogyny, about the misogyny in her country. And Tegan explains that it was well received. Uh, this was well received abroad, but maybe not as well received at home. It was said that Julia Gillard was accused of playing the gender card. And I know, yeah, it's. I mean, my the screen of my laptop can barely contain the amount of eye rolling that I'm actually doing with that. Playing the gender card. <sighs> when other people are talking about you as being a witch and certainly making a connection there with the word witch and bitch and burning. And apparently she was playing the gender card. And Tegan says at the moment that they are once again having conversations in Australia about sexism and misogyny after high-profile allegations in relation to assaults against women in Australia of a sexual nature. So um, plus a change where once again we're having the debate here about violence against women. They're having the same debate in Australia it's a worldwide debate that I think is constantly being had and doesn't seem with much resolution. I mean, you know, it's still happening. I mean, that was 10 years ago, the story about Australia, but only this week on the 27th, I think it was. So it, it was within the last week. There's been a bit of a hoo-ha about a particular, I'm going to call him a political commentator because I don't want to swear and, and upset some of our more delicate listeners but I'm not going to name him because I don't want to give him any extra sort of coverage for that. 
But there has been an issue about that because somebody on his blog made a really unpleasant comment, which I'll just quote a little bit from. So it says, I'm going to try and stop Sturgeon even getting to Holyrood in the first place. The Glasgow Southside constituency is unique in that it is the seat of the devil herself, dot, 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 Nicola Sturgeon. Decapitating this witch would stop the SNP dead in their tracks. And there's been some something that would be described by it's been described in the Herald as being defending the indefensible, um, where this political commentator has basically said that only you'd only have to be incredibly stupid if you thought that was anything other than a political statement. But I mean, like I would argue two things about that. One, it's it's really poor show in light of what happened to the MP Joe Cox and what we know women in politics and public life face all the time. The fact that a lot of them have to have personal alarms, they have to have extra security, that they get threats made against them, you know, and especially in the recent times about, about talking about violence against women. I mean, it's just so distasteful. Like, play the politics, not the person. And secondly, like, make up your mind with your imagery here, right? So Nicola is the devil and a witch. Right now, we have covered for the last 29 weeks the fact that witches are supposedly working for the devil. So get it right. Is she in charge or is she one of the devil's minions? Because that really pisses me off. Like, as, get your imagery straight. So as, a, as an English teacher, you're, you're annoyed that there were two separate things. But really, the English teacher, you're annoyed at the metaphor not working. Yeah, I just I just think as an intelligent person, you don't even need to be a teacher to be annoyed by that. Just get it right. Anyway. I think, was the offending post not removed? It was removed. It was removed um, with with some sort of sort of nonsensical nonsense just about, you know, I'm removing it just for those people that are too stupid to understand that it was just a metaphor. Okay, whatever, pal. Why don't you remove it just because it's really distasteful and because you put yourself up as a commentator with intelligence. Focus on the stuff you don't like about the politics, okay? Don't be a baby. Yeah, I think the trouble is that there's absolutely no need for violent imagery Mm -hmm. to be used in a political discussion. None. Yeah. And as you see, against a background where there is a history of violence, yep. there's just no need to go there. There is any different kind of metaphor that you can use which doesn't yeah. associate the removal of women from office with violence. Yeah, yeah. These are the same sort of people that would say all lives matter, not all men. You know, I'm not part of the problem. You are part of the problem. You are, in fact, the problem. Just had enough. We'll be talking about, obviously, the historical witch trials today, but I just think it is just worth always thinking about how we think about women and how we think about women that we don't like, you know, and how we express the fact that we don't like them. You know, they've got different politics. Focus on the politics, not on the women, you know? Yeah, I had a conversation with someone on Twitter saying the term witch, you know, calling someone a witch is, is too easy to go to. You know, it's so much in our vocabulary, I suppose, that it's an, yeah. easy, it's an easy thing to go to. And I was sort of thinking about it and thinking, actually, it's really, really strange that calling a woman a bitch seems to be more aggressive in a way than calling her a witch. Which I know, really, which is really odd. Because of the history of what happened to women that were called witches. I think it shows how much this people have lost a connection with what it meant to be accused and then executed for being a witch to a certain extent. And I think now it's just an easy shorthand, as we've said before, for sort of like the unattractive hag aspect of being a witch. You know, it's a, it's just a really quick misogynistic put down of like, you're ugly, you're not useful sexually, you know, you're, you're evil, you're out to get men, you're in league with the devil. You know, it's just, it's just lazy AF, I would have to say. <laughs> Anywho, anywho, we should move on because you can see that I'm like just you're starting to smolder at the edges. I know. know. So let's move on. Anyway, right, let's move on. So, shall we talk about the witches that you have done some research on this week? Yes. Well, it's not really so much research, Zoe, because the person that we're going to talk to is the person who is doing proper research on these matters. What I thought would be a good idea is simply to let you know the names of the people in this particular area that were accused of witchcraft. We're going to hear more about 
the women and men that were accused of witchcraft in Forfar. But I thought it would be a good idea to simply remind everybody of the names of those people. The names are Mary Rind, Helen Alexander, Elspeth Guthrie, Agnes Quitelaw, the wife of John Dewart, Isabel Syrie, George Elias, Jonet Stout, Helen Guthrie, Helen Cothall, Jonet Howitt, Robert Bruce, Elspeth Alexander, Catherine Porter, Isabel Shirey, Bessie Crockett, Agnes Spark, and Jonet Newton. So if we remember those people that were accused of witchcraft, those are the names of the Forfar people. And now I think we can go to our expert and hear more about the story of what happened in Forfar. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce today's guest. She is an independent scholar of history who started off with particularly an interest in literary history. So that's sort of segging into my interest too, but has now really gone over recent, I don't know if it's years or if it's months that you've been doing this, we'll get to that, but into witches and the witch trials. So I would like to just introduce today, Judith Gorman. Welcome Judith to our show. Thank you very much for having me. It's so nice to have you here because we've been really aware of different things that you've been doing that we've seen you putting up, particularly on Facebook. So we know that you have a wealth of information, but today we're going to confine you, possibly cruelly, to only speaking (laughs) about the Forfar history, because we've not gone that side. We've had some Fife, we've had other areas, but I don't think, Claire, am I right in this? We've not covered Forfar at all yet. Yes, I should say as a generality, we're against confining women, but to Judith is not actually confined. She's in her own area. We're all in our own areas. Everything is safe and fine. I'm okay. I've got books. <laughs> We're not holding her hostage. Um, yeah, no, no, we haven't had any talk of the witches of Forfar, so I'm really, really interested to find out about them. The, the first thing I'd like to ask you, Judith, is why Forfar? Why are you so interested in Forfar? Okay, um, I moved to Forfar in... 2005 and the one of the first places I went to was the local Meffin Museum with my two kids and they have an exhibition about the Witches of Forfar. So being a complete geek, I wasn't content with just the little cards printed out in front of me. I thought I have to know more immediately. And uh, there's lots of interesting place names and things around Forfar when you walk about and uh, So I thought, I have to know why they're called that. And also, Forfar's town plan hasn't changed since medieval times. So the facades of the buildings have changed. Like in a lot of towns, they got a Georgian makeover. So you know when you're walking about the streets in Forfar that they were exactly the streets that these um, accused people walked down. And it just became, it took off as a project while I was doing a PhD on something else. And it really kind of took over. Then in uh, the, for the 400th anniversary of the Pendle Witch Trials, there was an international conference at Lancaster University. So I got invited to speak there and give a paper. And there's lots of parallels between the Pendle Witch Trials and the Forfar ones. So... Yeah, so I couldn't leave it when I came home. And I think 10 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> well, we're really glad that you are because you're going to be our, our wealth of information and you've done all the hard work and we're here to benefit from that and reap the rewards of it while, while we talk to you about it. Well, it's so nice to be able to share it because part of the reason I sort of put my books and things away was because there seemed like, oh, what's the end game to this? There's no, I mean, while I was always thinking of it being such an injustice to these people and that there should be something up in the town saying, you know, these people were just people. There is a private memorial on the very edge of Forfar Lock in a place called Muri Now. That's one of the places where the accused were said to have gathered. And people who own the land there have put up a beautiful memorial 
And that does say on it, they were just people. And so, but there's nothing, there should be something in the centre of town. I mean, you, you'll have found this, I'm sure. There's so much in the records about the people who prosecuted, um, you know, the, the great and the good are all talked about. But these people who have been a, subjects of a huge miscarriage of justice, there's no memorial to them. So your project, your uh, petition uh, for gaining a pardon, that's what sparked up my interest again, because I was like, oh, my goodness, someone's doing something about this. Um, oh, that's it, great. Oh, yeah, it's, it's been it's been uh, it's brilliant. And it's great to see the progress you've made because it's so important. We, yeah, we, I think, we think so. Yeah. Well, you know, in COVID times as well, it's really struck me. The last time I was researching, the comparison I made a long time ago was with George Bush and his axis of evil. So you're either with us or against us. And that's exactly what James VI said about the witches. And then in COVID times where people are very keen to shout at someone in the supermarket who may not have a mask on, there may be a justified reason for that. Or to maybe snitch on a neighbour who's, you know, things like that. You think this still underlies what goes on in our society. You know, the veneer of civilization is very thin. And you see during times of crisis like this, that people will pick out a neighbour. People will gossip about that, you know. So it's, this has never gone away. What caused these accusations still is there in our society. I think uh, Zoe has spoken before, and I've never lived in a, a small village, but Zoe has spoken before about village life, haven't you? And that sort of way of the dynamic of yeah. small groups of people. The village that I live in isn't particularly tiny, and it's really just a suburb of Dundee, to be honest. But when I was a little girl, it was much more like a village, you know. And now, because we're so sort of international and global, ordinarily you don't really notice that. But I think, I, like you're saying, Judith, during lockdown, because it was the people that lived there had to stay there, you became much more aware of, even just in really benign ways, going out for a walk, you see the same faces so you start to think, oh, are they married to them or are they friends with that person or is that their kids or, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you, you see the same people all the time. You do start to really notice things. So I think in the, in the days of the witch trials, I think it would have been very easy for a very kind of gossipy, chatty, keeping an eye on everybody else all the time mentality to arise. I can see why it happened. I mean, obviously it's not, it's not pleasant, but you can see yeah. why that happens with psychology of humans. And Forfer is strange in a way because all of the surnames that you recognise from the accused, all these surnames are still found in Forfer. I think the gene pool wow. here is really quite small. And I don't say that to be offensive, but people in Forfar who are Forfarians, the older people, all remember, you know, oh, yeah, that's such and such. Her granny was married on to, and they'll give you the history of that family. And if they had money or, you know, there's, they still know all these family connections. Yeah. So that's quite fascinating as well. So what happened in Forfar? Okay, as we all know, Cromwell invaded Scotland in 1651-52 and um, he set up a very structured, well, I mean, he was basically all about control, wasn't he? So troops were stationed in towns and cities all over Scotland and Forfar was one of those. So while the troops were here, there weren't any witch trials. Cromwell seemed to be, or his troops and, and his uh, commissioners seemed to be very anti-witch hunt. You know, they had bigger fish to fry. So everything stopped. Unfortunately for Forfar, there was a, a scuffle and the fire broke out. And all of our records prior to 1661 have been destroyed. So I think that Cromwell's troops probably didn't really keep very many or they destroyed them when they left. But they'd also set fire to the charter chest, which had everything in it. And that's all gone. But as soon as they left, there was a power vacuum. They had such a tight hold on the community and society in general, and then they just up and left one night. And, you know, the Presbyterian Church filled that void, that power vacuum, and they, they, they swept in and they thought to themselves, 
this is a great opportunity to to finally structure our godly society, our city on the hill. You know, uh, we are going to start from scratch. And so witch trials didn't tend to break out if you didn't have a zealous minister. And unfortunately, in 1658, um, we had a very zealous minister called Alexander Robertson, and he seemed to be very much in favour of witch trials and uh, whipping up hysteria. Ministers would quell these things before they became informal accusations and things if they thought that it was just nonsense, if someone was just a gossip. But there seemed to be a push in Forfar from the actual community as well, and the minister was zealous. And there was this whole idea of creating this godly society. So that meant anyone who didn't conform with that plan, they seemed to just want rid of. And so Alexander Robertson was the minister here from 1658, and then he died in 1662, and the witch trials just stopped. He was the shortest serving minister in the 17th and 18th century. And I think if you believe in divine retribution, he popped his clogs and did the community a favour because that's along with the um, Privy Council refusing to allow torture anymore in order to obtain a confession in 1662. He also died. So after that was a mopping up process just of the ones who were left in prison. But that's how it started. It started when Cromwell's troops left. There is an idea that there's possibly accusations made while Cromwell's troops were here, but nothing was ever done about it. So there was a pile of people in the community that the community had suspicions about. So when the troops left and the Presbyterian Church took hold, it was almost like a bomb had gone off. They were dealing with a backlog of witches. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're among us. Do records exist where it identifies the different accused? Oh, yes. A woman in our archives, uh, Angus Archives, called Fiona Charlaw, has done some amazing work. She has dug up a lot of records. I've dug up a lot from um, Privy Council records, which are mostly online now. Brian Lovac, he has uh, a list of accused as well. So there are records because there are some confessions I say confessions, I hate saying that word. Yeah. Um, there are some... We always put inverted commas around it, which is exactly. so pointed out, isn't any good when you're in a podcast. I wanted to do that. Every time we say confessions, just in your mind, put those wee... And every time I write them in notes, I put that down too. Yeah. So luckily we have some confessions. We have in them, the accused will name lots of other people. And so there's a good list of... We've got 42 at the moment, you know, the four for 42. There's obviously way more than that, but that's until archives and things open again. That's what I think we're at. We're pretty certain that 11 of them were killed and then some were freed and banished. One which is fascinating, and I don't know of this anywhere else, apart from the, the lady who died in Fife, is we have a witch who was buried. Well, yeah. And that's fascinating because the body has never been found, uh, the remains have never been found, and there's been lots of work done in the area that she she was buried when they were putting railway sidings and stuff like that. They found other stuff like Neolithic boats and stuff, but they didn't find the body. So that body's still there. What was her name? Her name was Gazelle Simpson. And it's really quite tragic because... It's thought she must have been really quite young, under 18 anyway, because her parents were sent for to bury her. So that meant she wasn't married. She didn't have her own family, just her parents. So she is interesting because she was the first one we have a record of. A commission was sent to the Privy Council for her, but we don't know if it just didn't arrive back in time or the authorities in Forfar weren't fully aware of what you do when you find a witch. So she was subject to the usual torture. And the records of this are found in the treasurer's accounts. That's another fascinating thing that I can talk about later. But she was imprisoned in the toll booth and she was tortured and the commission was sent for. But it seems to be that before that arrived back, she was either the subject of a lynch mob 
or they just decided that the way you um, get rid of a witch is you hang her from the toll booth, then you cut her down and bury her in the local playfield. So that was what happened to poor Gazelle Simpson. It's thought that they weren't very savvy when it came to witch trials at that point. So that was a practice run almost. But her body was kept for quite a long time before it was buried because they had to send for the parents. I'm not entirely sure where the parents were. They came and the town paid for her to be buried in the local playfield. And that's where she will still lie to this day. Somewhere in there that people go every day, walk over, she still lies. And the reason you know about her is not because of her own story told, but because she turns up in the columns. In the the treasurer's accounts. Yeah, there are no, there are very few presbytery records on any of this. You know, researchers always talk about this. So, you know, somewhere, someone along the line decided that "Mm, maybe it doesn't look very good for us as a church if we've done this to all these people. So we'll just ditch all these records. But it's always about the money. You know, it's the economy is stupid. So if you look for treasurer's accounts, you can find incredible things in there. You can find payments for, uh, well, for example, for Gazelle Simpson, it was eight pounds of candles. She was kept awake and watched. So they needed eight pounds of candles for that for a few days. You'll find things like Forfer didn't have its own executioner, so it had to send to either Perth or Montrose. So that had to be paid for. That's all documented. Instruments of torture when John Kincaid arrived in town, they had to be paid for. So they're in the treasurer's accounts. So now who was John Kincaid? Don't get me started on him. John Kincaid was from Trenent and he's known as a famous witch pricker. I said that very carefully. Um, so he he earned himself a reputation of being able to prick witches or the accused, find areas where they didn't feel pain, and that then proved that they were a witch. Now, we know that people like Kincaid used retractable needles. They also... If they're pricking someone who's been tortured, say say they're wearing a boot or something like that, you know, so they're in extreme agony somewhere else and you poke them in the back with a needle, they're not going to feel that. They're not going to react. Hang on, Judith. Can I just clarify? When you're saying, say they're wearing a boot, you're not meaning just a boot. No, no. You're meaning the boot that is the torture device. Yes. For those that aren't familiar with that, can I ask you to do the horrible job of explaining what the boot did, please? Certainly. There's two types. There's the Spanish boot, which is a metal type, which the the feet were put in, the legs, lower half of the legs were put in, and that could be heated up. Or um, stakes could be put into it and hammered between the legs to, to crush the shin bones. And basically, once you'd been in the boot, you would never be able to walk again. So, but the one that seems to be used most in Scotland is the wooden version, which is basically sort of four planks of wood placed around each leg, and there were spikes in them facing inwards. And if someone placed a, a stake in between that and hammered it, well, you could imagine the pain. And they say that the maximum number of strikes it took in order to gain a confession was three. You would say anything. You would anything say anything at all. to make it stop. Absolutely. And they only do this stuff after you've been kept awake and without water and you're hallucinating. And at that point, you pretty much see anything anyway. And then they'll introduce something like the boot and things like that. They didn't tend to mention it in treasurer's accounts because it was so commonplace to use these. It was you know, it wasn't really talked about. They would have these in their armoury, so to speak. So you'd have things like the boot, you'd have the scold's bridle, we've all seen the scold's bridle that goes over the head, and usually we'd have something that went in your mouth to keep your tongue down, or they weren't usually as gentle as that when it came to witchcraft, they'd have spikes in them as well. And that might be attached to a wall, and you might be standing up, and so if you fell asleep and you pressure went down with your head, you know, the, the spikes would go through the roof of your mouth and through your tongue. They put them in stocks. There's in the treasurer's account for Forfer, they they use stocks. Now these stocks 
wouldn't have been used outside because they didn't want the witches to curse people that were going past. So these stocks would have been used inside the tall booth so that they couldn't lie down or sit comfortably or what else did they use? Thrown by a rope. That's a very common form of torture. And that was basically just, you know, you were strangled, then the strangulation was eased and strangled again and eased. And then you've got things like periwinks, which were thumb screws and you had things for crushing hands and Oh, I don't know how how many do you want? <laughs> and was this it beggars this particular to Forfer, or was this from your in your knowledge was this across Scotland? Because we this were was under, across Scotland. we were under the impression that quite often Scotland didn't wasn't necessarily as brutal physically maybe as other places were because Scotland relied quite heavily on the sort of the mental torture of keeping awake. But no, was, I think that's because that's possibly the only kind of torture that we can find written down. The thought is that you would mention that possibly in treasurer's accounts or something because you're having to pay for the men to watch them. So in Forfa they had six districts so that meant that each district provided a man to to take you know shifts of watching and waking. So that had to be paid for. Candles had to be paid for. Tobacco had to be paid for for the men that were there because you've got to keep them comfortable. So all these things had to be paid for, whereas if you had these instruments of torture anyway, which we know existed because a lot of them are still in museums and things today, that didn't have to be paid for. So that wasn't mentioned in terms of gaining a confession. I would think if it had been mentioned anywhere, that will have disappeared in the presbytery documents. I don't know if it would have been mentioned that they'd done that. I mean, I, th- I think it's still in some Privy Council records that they'll mention about certain types of torture that were used on people. But no, it is thought that these were so commonplace and Scotland was much, much more brutal than England. So they seem to really like their torture here. I've said this before, my Scottish history is absolutely appalling. And if I wasn't doing homeschooling with my youngest, who's in first year, I still wouldn't know anything. Today we did Robert the Bruce, knew nothing about him. We've done recently Bannockburn, knew nothing about that. I'd, I was listening to the rugby, was was on in the background last weekend, and they were singing Flower of Scotland, and I went, oh, King Edward's <laughs> army, I know what that means now. Like, I yeah. know nothing, I know nothing. And I did I did history up to sixth year level, and yeah. it was, you know, it was either going to be history or English at university. You know, I knew, I knew about American things yes about the second world war but that you see this much earlier period of scottish history no clue whatsoever yes i'm not surprised that scotland was more brutal than england with my new newfound first year (laughs) history knowledge i think with torture what the reason why it was thought that scotland was better was because we did less duking of women oh okay and also what happened was the privy council said that it didn't approve of torture. But the difficulty is what it described torture as didn't yes. many of the things that you've described. So this is exactly one of my points as well, is define torture. Yes. You know, they didn't think waking and watching someone was torture. You know, whereas we all know now that's probably one of the first things that, you know, the CIA might use or something like that. But they didn't think that that was torture. And what astounds me is, and going through the treasurer's accounts, it really astounded me, because someone is writing that down in minute detail. And what is going through their mind where they are writing down, oh, we need X number of pounds to to pay for the rope that has to be a certain length long to hang this person. Oh, we're, we're paying for pins, two pins, to torture Elspeth Rind or Catherine Porter. They're they're right, and it says two pins for the torture of, for the pricking of, sorry. And you think, these are godly men. You know, these are not stupid men. The people that were on the commissions were actually some of the best minds in the country. They were up to date with the most intellectual thoughts. It was them. They were the ones doing it. And you think, how could they, well, you know, you know that the reason that they could justify it was they they no longer saw the accused person as a person. They dehumanised them. So I guess that's how they justified it. Yeah, they weren't doing it. I think when we spoke to Julian Goodyear, he said 
Well, the thing is that what they were doing was God's work. They were driving the devil out of the community. So they felt righteous in what they were yes. doing. It was that mindset that that meant that despite, and Zoe's always it says this, despite the fact that these people were in league with the devil, they were poor, they were vulnerable. If they were ill, the devil wasn't healing them. They were getting nothing from this, apparently. So yes. even, though, even though it would appear to anyone thinking, how on earth are they benefiting from being involved with the devil? I read an article about this recently that outlined those things too, that it wasn't what's known as a Faustian pact. So it wasn't like in, you know, the idea that you sold your soul to the devil for riches or fame or power or sexual magnetism or whatever. That's right. It was for pure badness, which again is so Scottish. Yes. It's so Scottish. It's like, it's not even for any sort of gain. It's just because I'm bad. I'm just a bad person. Yes. Other people to be as fucking miserable as I am. Sorry, David. Yes. I'm so glad you swore because I've been trying not to swear the whole time. <laughs> no, it's all right. I, We've I, done it now. We've done it I, now. I, sorry, sorry, listeners that, that don't really? I, I have to <laughs> rein myself in. Claire will tell you I'm a prolific swearer when I'm not being recorded. <laughs> oh, me too. So the, the thinking then was that you actually, you just became, you just you just got in league with the devil just out of badness. So you just yes. wanted to be a person that brought misfortune and sadness and pain to other people, but no actual gain to yourself, which is just yeah. astonishing to me. In a forefront, it was obviously a, not a ruse, but it was a way of rounding up Catholics. So the Presbyterians, the staunch Presbyterian in them would have thought that they were getting rid of Catholicism, they were wiping that out from their godly society. Because to them, it's this whole idea of Renaissance dualism, and you're either good or you're bad or you're with us or you're against us. If you don't believe in the Protestant God, the Presbyterian God, then that means, and you're a Catholic, that means you believe in the devil because Catholic is the Antichrist. Yeah. Yes. So they were they were clearly rooting out a bit of Catholicism. The women in Forfar, they seemed to have a great time, to be honest to you. <laughs> Obviously, they didn't when they got caught, but they were... Forfar at the time was... It had a population of a 1,000, which was a reasonable size of town in the sort of 1660s, but obviously tiny by our standards. Well, that kind of does put 42 into perspective, though. 42, and that's 42 that we know of. Yeah, I think it works out as 4.2% of the population. And I think during the national hunt... One of you will remind me, is it, is it 0.48% of the population or something that was that was killed? Oh, and, and we don't, uh, what we know is that in Scotland, between the 16th and 18th century, it, there was about 1 million people in the country and 4,000 4, were accused. So I, I don't know how that would work out as a percentage, but I, I completely forget when we're talking about the numbers of people every time and we talk about villages that they're yes. involved with, I was thinking of four for now and thinking yes. of 22 people in that. I wasn't thinking of how small it would have been then. Yeah. That is. Yeah. So we were way above the national average. And that was only in a two year period, you know, probably 18 months. And and that's incredible. That must have been these, terrifying to live at that time in Forfar. Wow. Yeah. And you see, so many of the surnames are similar. So you know that they were family members you know if one person was accused then the daughter would be the, probably accused as well or the sister or the cousin and the witch the witch trials here are, are full of the name Guthrie and Guthrie is a local name Guthrie is just along the road from Forfar and that's where the surname originates from so people on the commission we have Guthrie's on the commission Thomas Guthrie Gideon Guthrie we have two Guthrie sisters from Montrose who came to Forfar to be accused and, well, to be tortured. We don't know why they came from Montrose. We think that probably Montrose didn't have, it didn't accuse many people. So they probably, because Forfar was in the middle of this stuff and they had all the torture equipment and they had all the people who knew how to do it. Let's just send them to Forfar. But it might be because they were related to Helen Guthrie, which is the main sort of subject when you talk about the Forfar witch trials. So they may all be related. Tell us then about Helen Guthrie. What is her story that, that she's the centre focus of the Four for Witch Trials? Well, Helen Guthrie is interesting for a number of reasons. She accused 30 of the 42. 
but she didn't do it in one stage. I mean, when I talk about accused, this is another thing I think about, because we know that the confessions were formalised and they were contrived. So we know these weren't the words of the people that were confessing. And I wonder if the same is true about the accused. I mean, did they just nod their head? You know, was this a person that was maybe uh, suffering from some forms of psychosis or delusion or due to all the sleep deprivation and then the pain? And did someone say a name, which is, you know, someone in the church would quite like to clear up? Let's include them. Were they there to person nods head? That's the equivalent of an, an accusation. Yeah. We don't know. We, so we, Helen Guthrie accused 30 and it was over an 18 month period. So even though commissions were, a commission was sent to have her executed once she'd confessed, she played, you could maybe call it a clever game in that Helen Guthrie's 13-year-old daughter was accused with her. So she was arrested in 1661, along with her mum. She was 13 at the time. She's described as being very small, because the devil describes her as being such a little lass. And she's imprisoned in the tall booth with her mum and the other accused. And it seems that Helen, she would give some names, and then she would say, look, I need some time to recover and think, and then I'll give you some more. So it's imagined that that was because she was trying to keep her daughter alive long enough to have her released or for someone to come and help her. And um, eventually that did happen. But her daughter, Janet Howitt, was imprisoned in the toll booth for five years from when she was 13 till she was 18. What? Yeah. And, you know, she's in the dark. She's in the freezing cold. She's not getting enough to eat. Uh, she can't sleep. And she's been watched by men. You know, you don't know what else these men are doing with these women. So Helen seems stayed alive as long as she could in order to keep her daughter alive. And her daughter was eventually released. And that's another really interesting story because Fiona Charlotte has found out that the, the person who appealed to the Privy Council to have her released his surname was Guthrie, John Guthrie, and he was a lawyer in Dundee. So was he related to Helen Guthrie? Was he related to the two Guthrie sisters who got let off from Montrose as well? So that's another avenue that you know has to be explored in detail. But yeah, Janet Howitt's, her story is really tragic too. And so anyway, Helen, yeah, she accused these um, 30 people and She's often hailed by modern romantics who believe in witchcraft or witchcraft followers as being a white witch because she's referred to as the white witch. But I spoke to Joyce Froome from the Museum of British Witchcraft because I can't find anything from that period that discusses a white witch. Because after all, these people were malevolent. They were practising what was perceived as black magic. So Helen couldn't have been a modern day term, white witch. So Helen might have had white hair. She might have had, yeah, she might have had particularly pale skin. So it could have been something along these lines. So that's what I believe it is. And she, Helen liked to cause trouble. She liked to drink a lot. The people that she went around drinking with in graveyards and things after dark were disorderly. Uh, they were always waking up people in the town because they would they would bang on the door of the brewer or the whiskey merchant at two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. And then if he didn't get up and give them some booze, he would get cursed and shouted at. And so she, she admits that she is not a good person. She says at some point that she murdered her stepsister. I don't know if that's in presbytery records anywhere, if that was dealt with, I, I don't know anything about that. But she apparently Helen was 13 and her stepsister was six and she hit her on the head and murdered her. So is that true? I mean, was that said while she was in the process of confessing? And she obviously was hallucinating and all these other things. Plus, if you think if she, if she drank a lot every single day, then she's going to be suffering the, the effects of sudden forced abstinence from alcohol. So she says things like the, the devil came to visit her in the toll booth and she describes all that and what happened. And so that's, that's our white witch. 
Helen Guthrie. And like I say, she accused lots of other people, 30 other people. So that was all looked into. But I always feel sorry, like you, Judith, about the when we hear stories of the people who said other people were witches with me and met with the devil and stuff like that, because we are told that to call yourself a witch and to confess to being a witch wasn't enough for those that were torturing you. They needed to root out the devil from society and they knew that the devil did not dine and dance alone. They knew that yes. they liked to have these, you know, group orgies uh, yes. with the devil. And therefore, to, for you to confess you're a witch, great, great, we've got you, you're a witch. Yes. You have to tell us who the rest of them were. Yeah, yeah. we need the other 12 who were there that night because yeah. Forfer's confessions mention covens and 13. So, so if you were there that night, who were the other 12? And they'll not rest until they find out who they were. And that was just on that one occasion. So what about the night that you were there? Who were there that night? Yeah. And so that, that all that uh, was influenced by whatever the, um, the minister and the commissioners were reading. What were they reading about? You know, where, where were they getting this information on the magic formula that made up the, the confession? You know, and what were they reading? So they were obviously reading about the demonic pact and that being made. And but they couldn't make it sound too exciting. So if you were having sex with the devil, they always made sure you, everyone knew that it was bad sex. You know, he he wasn't very good at it. And you think, well, if, if he had all these powers, surely the devil would be. You know, again, it's going to be, isn't it? Again, it's perplexing. I yes, and again, it's this idea about well. You know, you can sort of understand getting in tow with the devil if he was like really hot and, yeah. and you were going to have amazing times and yeah. you're going to have loads of power. I'd still find it really hard, you know, to get my head around that. It's obviously such a construct by by just real Scottish killjoyness. I know. <laughs> and they, they make sure that the person mentions in their confession that the sex was not good. Yeah. So... That's that has to be put in there. That's important. And the thing with with Helen Guthrie, and obviously all the other accused, it upsets me that they are monopolised for for our time. There's this gloss put on them that they were somehow they were witches. You know, modern day witches will tell you that these were the grandfathers. Um, the you know, we're all linked by the silver thread through time that doesn't break. And we are descended from these strong, rebellious women. And you think that that does them such an injustice yeah, because the I last think... thing these people, if you want to remember these people and you want to recognise them and you need to be honest about it. And the last thing these people yeah. would have wanted you to call them as a witch I feel that's a really important point to get out there. You know, I'm very happy for anyone to believe what they want to believe. I have no issue with that at all. But the facts don't back that up. Yeah, um, I, I feel really, really strongly about that as well. I think I think what you're saying about, you know, glamorising it and romanticising it, you know, we've got this sort of picture in our mind, we've got this kind of duality of like the sort of the shriveled old crone that sort of angle to the witch with the pointed hat and the nose and all the rest of it. But then we've also got the other side of that is this, this idea that all the women or many of the women that were accused and, and killed were sort of wise women that were working away in a cottage in the forest, making yeah. practices and they were redheads and they stood up to the men and it was because they were feisty. I think that's just such baloney. And I, I get why it happens I get yes. why people bolster their own identity with it and say, you know, like I have been maligned because I'm a woman or, you know, and I, I feel these are the reasons for it. Like I completely get that psychologically. Yes. But I just think it's very, very important that we stick to the facts. And the yes, facts and, are and it's interesting yeah. that, you know, the charmers were not persecuted on the whole. If a person was uh, accused of being witch and they happened to be a charmer, that was almost by the by. The Witchcraft Act of uh, 1563 was deliberately quite vague because it wanted to wipe out these evil superstitions, and that meant Catholics. So when you came to the 1560s, 
they were still looking to wipe out Catholics. They wanted them away from the godly society. But they weren't interested in cure wives and they weren't interested in charmers because these people, I mean, this is pre-scientific age. This is a, a pre-medicine age. These people were useful to society. If they knew about herbology, things like that, they were useful. And the reason we know that so many of them weren't persecuted was because what happened with all of their remedies? You know, where, where did they go? Where did all that knowledge go? We still have all that because in the big houses, if you think like House of Dunn is one of them, the lady of the big house, she, obviously the, the charmers, and they couldn't write down their remedies. They remembered them all. But the lady of the big house was in charge of her household, which could, you know, maybe be 200 people in all. So she would sit down with one or two or however many people with folk medicine or folk magic, and she would write down those remedies. So we still have them to this day. You can find them in archives. There's a great one in Dundee, but there's one at the House of Dunn. So these people were useful. If they happened to cross over into what was seen as black magic, then they would be persecuted for being a witch. But that, that, usually, that wasn't the reason for going after them. Yeah, it's really mm. strange, that sort of strange line, as we see it in the modern day, between charming and acts of witchcraft. And yes. We, we look on either side of them and say there's no difference to that other than on one side you are tortured into confessing that the reason that you're doing this is because you're in a pact with the devil. Yes. But if you're not yeah. in a pact with the devil, you can do all these things and it's all right. You can... No bother, you, you know, because... Arms. Because, you know, what does the what does the town provost do, you know, when he has a bellyache and he, he needs someone to come and help him out? Can't imagine there was a surgeon or anything like that in Forfar, so you're going to get in touch with someone who has a herbal remedy. So I know that some midwives were persecuted, but that would, again, be for another reason. Midwives got into private spaces. They learned secrets, you know, so... Often, if you didn't want them to spill that secret after you'd been in the throes of birth and you'd mentioned that the baby's father was not who everyone thinks is the baby's father, then you might accuse you know, the, the midwife of witchcraft. But it wasn't because she was a midwife, it was because she knew secrets. And, you know, in the pre-scientific age, magic was all around. You know, you can explain how certain everyday things happened. One of them that I, I love is they knew that sunlight acted as a disinfectant. So on a sunny day, that's when you clean the dairy and you put everything outside. And you knew if you did that, people wouldn't get tummy upsets. Now, you didn't know it was because the sunlight acted as a disinfectant. It was just magic. It was the fairies. Things like bread. Now, they didn't know how natural yeast worked. So you would put your bread mix, you would put that in the meadow. You'd leave it there for a few hours. And when you went back, it had risen. Because there's natural yeast about everywhere. But yeah. that was the fairies. So that's why they cut crosses in the top of bread, loaves of bread, because it's to let the fairies out. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, and you think about, well, how could sort of Catholic rituals and some beliefs still be prevalent in the 1660s when, you know, the, the, the Reformation happened in the 1560s? And you think, well, because... People are still doing all these things, right? People, my grandmother died when she was 94. My kids were very small. Now my kids are, are almost 30. So I still tell them stories that my grandmother told me. Mm. Now that's a hundred years of a difference now. So that means in 1563, if your grandparents were Catholics and they had certain rituals, certain things they would do on certain holy days, little rituals that they would, maybe little prayers that they would say to Mary or, or when they're, they're stirring in the dough or doing things like that, they're passed down to the daughter and then the granddaughter. That's 100 years. Mm -hmm. So there's still hidden Catholics and, or maybe not so hidden in Forfar's godly societies. They weren't going to church and they were saying incantations, allegedly. They would mention during confessions, they would maybe pray to Mary so there's good evidence, and apparently the, the 
the presbytery records, now this is something uh, Fiona Charlotte has done some work on. So the presbytery records that still exist for 1662 show that the local ministers were almost exclusively concerned with Catholics and adulterers. That's really interesting because we've not we've not really touched on that, particularly in our past podcasts about Catholicism and about how it was used as a method of control with that. So that's yes. quite interesting. It makes a lot more sense than some of the reasons that we've heard for people being accused of witchcraft. You know, you can yes. see there's a very clear reason why the church would not want those people to remain being like that. They would, and they'd want to send a message out to others to say this ends, this stops yes. now sort of thing. There's a certain amount of religious tolerance during Cromwell's time because you had Baptists, you had Quakers, you had, there was different religious sects that were going around doing their own thing and that was tolerated it's easy to think that the catholicism was possibly underground that was tolerated to an extent as well because like i said earlier cromwell's troops had bigger fish to fry Mm -hmm. but when they leave and the presbyterian church and the local presbyterian church is headed by a zealous minister he wants to root out all of that and he sees catholicism as this is on the same level as devil worship. It's fascinating talking to you. It's really great speaking to you. And I think we could talk for many, many, many hours about this, but I think we'll maybe stop there. And then if you're happy, would you come back another time and talk to us again about some other aspects? Absolutely, because I'd love to talk to you about a, a little lady called Isabel Smith. And uh, her confession is unique uh, in the witchcraft trials and records in Scotland for two reasons, but we'll talk about that next oh, time. Oh, Judith, you are so good for a cliffhanger. Yes, I marvellous. <laughs> yes, come back for more. Thank if you don't cry when I tell you about Isabel Smith, then you don't have a soul. Oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, no, I'm already like a witch test, though. <laughs> Judith, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll definitely hear from you again in the future. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Judith. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'd just like to take the opportunity just to say that even though the petition is now with the Scottish government and obviously we'll have to wait till after the election for that to be progressed, our campaign is still very much live. Okay, and I'm just going to remind everybody of what our campaign is. So we're looking for an apology. We're looking for a pardon and we're looking for a state national monument, which is paid for and maintained by the state. This wouldn't be something that we would be casting a net out to get people necessarily to design for us. That would be really nothing to do with us. This is something that we feel that the government needs to take responsibility for in the same way they've done with other national monuments. And it needs to be something that's very much from the state because we feel that you know, it was down to them hundreds of years ago that there were the accusations and the executions. So we feel that's very important. And sitting alongside our campaign is, of course, the fact that we have put a lot of time and effort and love into making the podcasts, which is really about, it's about raising the profile of the campaign, but it's also about connecting people across Scotland and, in fact, the world to be educated and to join in getting to know about this terrible part of our past. So we just want to say thank you so much to our thousands of listeners. We really, really appreciate it. We really appreciate you getting in touch. And we just think we're doing a good job here collectively, all the people that are involved in this. So thank you very much and keep engaging with us. Yeah, please do. We love to hear from you. We have so many people that we contact and sometimes people contact us to tell us about their expertise and it's it's opened up fascinating dialogues it's taken us to places we really wouldn't think about in the forthcoming episodes we are going to be hearing from another two different countries and their experience of the witchcraft trials and also how they've dealt with them subsequent to the witchcraft trials and how their countries have made a reckoning with what has happened or not as the case may be but it's interesting to see other countries around the world doing that as well so please continue to chat with us we really love it and we think it really benefits us as a whole when we find out more about other people's takes on the witchcraft trials and what they know about their local area as well perfect okay well thanks again for listening and join us again next week
Bye. Zoe, oh, Zoe, what? you've forgotten to tell everyone to rate us and follow us and do all oh my God, that bit. Sorry, I'm such a terrible witch influencer. Um, <laughs> can, you, can you please remember to rate us? If you want to give us five stars, that'd be amazing. I mean, I'm not telling you what to do or anything, but five stars would be fair, I think. Um, so please rate us. Please tell everybody that you know that you think might have an interest in this about it, because obviously not everybody uses the social medias um, and please do just keep keep engaging and just tell people about us that'll do not us not us I mean like the campaign Scotland I mean you know <laughs> there's not much to tell about us this is another sterling ending we're doing here so we have to see I think the fact that you and I have shown up in front of our laptops today with the simmering rage <laughs> and still <laughs> trying to be professional it just well done us. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners, if we're just like laughing in your ears now. Oh Lord. Honestly, I just I wish I took a drink. <laughs> anyway. Join us in episode 31, where Zoe we'll hopefully be... will not have taken a drink. We will not be soused. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Goodbye. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. <laughs>